Hello, lovelies. I am recording this little intro on Monday morning, September 19th, surrounded by all the boxes <laughs> that need to be unpacked after nearly a month of pop-up shops. Wow. It has been an incredible opportunity to meet with and dress those of you who could make it to this pop-up tour. There is nothing quite like trying something on in person, and there's nothing quite like seeing someone put your designs on for the first time. Thank you. Thank you for coming and shopping, and thank you for being the beautiful lights into the world and into my world that you all are. If you weren't able to make it to the pop-up tour, you still have time to shop before Rosh Hashanah. If you live in the U.S. outside the tri-state area, I'd say that today is the last day to order and guarantee, or pretty much mostly guarantee, it arrives by the end of the week. If you live in the tri-state area, that's New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, you have, I would say, until about Wednesday. I firmly believe that you really do need to try something on to know if it will work for you. That's why I offer free U.S. shipping and free 30-day returns on all orders. As always, if you have any questions about styles, sizing, or are just not sure where to start, feel free to reach out. You can email me at rifki at impactfashionnyc.com. You spell my name R-I-V-K-Y. You can DM me on Instagram at impact.fashion.myc or start a chat by going to impactfashionnyc.com and hitting the chat bubble on the bottom left of your screen. Thank you so much for your love and support this holiday season and enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzkowitz, and on today's show, I talk with a writer and scholar about her work. She shares what it was like to struggle with a language issue as a child, her pivot from radical feminist to orthodox Jew, why she's not interested in reconciling those two worlds, and we discuss anti-Semitism in the modern age, with a historical context. When my friend Valerie Stavnitzer, who has been a guest on the show, suggested I follow and get to know her friend, Nurit Siegel, I jumped right in and was immediately fascinated by the way Nurit breaks down big topics like anti-Semitism, womanhood, parenthood, and pretty much anything else on her mind into digestible, easy-to-read bits. I think of Nurit as a true scholar, and getting to chat with her was an absolute pleasure. So when I was a little kid, I... For a little context, I was brought up in a secular Israeli household. Both my parents are Israeli, and my and I'm the youngest of three. So I was a lot, I was definitely tomboyish, and I wanted to be like my brothers, and I wore their hand-me-downs. And uh, I really was very, your typical, like, outgoing Jewish girl, uh, and I did a lot of sports and and activities and things like that but I probably I think I was probably well known for asking a lot of questions mm. and being a little annoying in class and eventually I kind of grew out of that in high school but I as a kid we were um my father he passed away when I was 10 but he was really he was kind of a philosopher. He worked in philosophy uh, in Tel Aviv as a teacher, as a professor, and he brought us up to ask a lot of questions and have a lot of discussions. So I feel like as a kid, I was really engaged in good conversation, and I was I was quite a conversationalist myself, if, that's, if, that, if that helps to paint a picture of little Marie. I, I can see how that would connect to what you do now. What I'm I'm always curious about like <laughs> right. kids who have like good conversation skills and who are generally questioning. Were the adults around you like did they appreciate that or was it like okay, like we'll we'll explain when you're older. Oh, that's so funny. So I definitely remember my mother at one time asking me, you know, um just you have so much to say in the mornings and i and i said to her well you know i i'm making up for how much i didn't talk all last night like i was mm-hmm. asleep and so but she said it in a very endearing way she's always really loved 
how curious I've been. And she's always, my parents were very, very, you know, and my mom still is very intellectual and it was really support. I grew up around a lot of Israelis that drank a lot of coffee and had a lot of cigarettes. So I was around a lot of opinionated conversations, but I was also taught this really wonderful value by being around Israelis of quiet and just being with someone with a cup of coffee. So I, I felt like I got the best of both worlds because I grew up with people who knew how to talk and knew how to discuss and argue very respectfully uh, because Israelis don't hold grudges. They get it all out, you know, right when you're there. They just say what's bothering them right there. So it's very honest conversation, but they also really value quiet and not being stimulated all the time. So I would say both things were really nurtured by, by the people I was around. That's such a wonderful way to describe Israeli personalities. It's like anyone who's been yes. in Israel who's interacted with real Israeli people has like, especially if you're coming from like an American, like I, I am a soft American, you know what I mean? Like if, <laughs> if, if you're going to that environment, then it can seem very like gruff, but, yes. but you're right that like, they just, they get it out on the table and nobody holds a grudge. It's like, you know exactly where you stand. Oh, a thousand percent. I remember my grandmother was very, my, my Safta was very upset with me one day and I was horrified because if an American was upset with me that much in one day, I, I think we'd like, I'd, I probably wouldn't be talking to them to this day, but my, my grandmother was so upset. And I remember saying to my, my Ima, my mother, Safta is so upset with me. I, I don't know, like how our relationship's going to be. She said, it's fine. We're going to go there tomorrow. She already said what she wanted to say. Tomorrow is going to be fine. And I go there the next day and she has coffee and Israeli salad waiting for me. You know what I mean? Like she was done. That's it. She talked about it. We moved on. It was, it's really lovely. It is. It's a exactly. great it's like, quality. It's like, oh, we, we had coffee, Israeli salad and all was good. Like it was, it just, <laughs> it just worked yes. out well that way. Um, yes. You no longer live in Israel. So uh, how did that, how did that come about? What were, you know, what, what was your schooling like? How did you decide to eventually, you know, I think it's called making your Yerida, right? Opposite of Aliyah. Oh, I actually, this is a major point of shame for me, but I have to say that I personally wasn't born in Israel. My oldest brother and my parents were, and my parents uh, lived there for, you know, the first half of their lives. They got married, had my oldest brother, and they moved to America. So I... Oh didn't have the privilege of telling people that I was born, you know, in Israel. Um, I'm just like one of those, you know, Americans that thinks they can speak Hebrew. And I, I sound very impressive to Americans. And when I go to Israel, they're like, eh, this is very difficult. Please, eh, can we speak English? I don't want to listen to you. So it's like, when I go there, they're like, no, we're not, I'm not, I'm not speaking Hebrew with you. This is, this is broken. This is, this is nothing. So when I'm here, I, I, I speak Hebrew and, and, um, but I, so I feel like I was brought up in a very Israeli environment with my home, but, uh, from day one, I was, I was really here in American society in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is a very, um, it's a very intellectual town. It has the university of Michigan. Uh, so I was, yeah, I was really, I was really born and bred here. Okay. I, I, okay. I hear it, but still like in that Israeli environment, basically just because you're surrounded by Israeli people. Yes, very, very much. So my, my friend, my parents' friends were, and their community was really the Israeli community. Got it. Okay. I hear it. You describe yourself as a writer on anti-Semitism, modern political thought and Jewish philosophy. And I want to like dive into some of those topics with you but first I have to know how do you become that like how does that <laughs> like how does that happen as like a, a you are a writer you're a fantastic writer you break down huge Thank ideas you. and complex things into really like uh, you know I can understand them um but I gotta know how this happens like you know you were you say you were always interested in you know great conversation and things like that but how does great conversation essentially become your career Wow. Thank you so much, by the way. That's that's great to know because uh, as part of that, I will mention, and I hope this is validating for anybody else who struggles with this, but 
when I was, I was born to, to, you know, Israeli immigrants and I didn't have the vocabulary that, that my friends had. I didn't have the skills and English. So even to this day, I'm constantly asking my, my husband, what does that word mean? Like, I've never heard of that phrase before in my life. And I remember like watching Blue's Clues as a little kid and not like, what is an or? They, people are making up words. I very much felt growing up like people thought, not not my parents at all. They thought I, you know, they thought all their kids were brilliant, but um, people really thought that I I didn't know how to talk and that I had a language problem. Uh, and I was tested for all sorts of things and I didn't do well on standardized testing. Uh, I was a good student, but I was not a good test taker. I had a lot of anxiety and I didn't realize growing up that I had I had certain analytical skills because I found language was always the way. So I very much wanted to be like my mother and father, very intellectual, thoughtful people. Um, but because, you know, Hebrew was really my, I would say my first language, even though, you know, now it doesn't seem like it is. Um, I grew up with this tension of wanting to be able to express really big ideas and not being able to. And my father was, as I said, he was a philosopher type. He uh, ended up a career in computers, but he had his master's in philosophy and I have my master's in political theory. So that's not too far off. And he actually studied um, political philosophy. He, he, his MA was on Marxism and he was, you know, a socialist Democrat, both my, both my parents, I would say are. And he, I remember, first of all, I remember my mother helping me so much overcome my barriers uh, in writing. And I struggled so much as a young writer. I would write, you know, a paragraph and it would take me three hours. So, you know, anybody who sees their kids struggling with writing and language, a lot of times, you don't, we don't always know when uh, or what the person who's trying to express themselves is struggling with. And I was really, really struggling to express myself. So it's definitely very interesting to me now that I'm a writer. Uh, but I would say that, you know, my mother helping me and also I had some English teachers in, in high school and a Latin teacher who saw that I had potential and really, really took hours to help me after school, during school. And they made me realize together with my mother that I had a love of writing and I had a love of literature and especially analytical writing. And this was something I always admired in my father and always grew up admiring, but I didn't think it was going to be accessible to me because people told me, you know, Nareed has a lot of thoughts. She has no idea how to say them. So I was brought up by teachers, especially in the beginning, who thought I had a real lack of skills. Now, in high school, I realized that I had, there's some potential here. And I remember in college, I stepped into my library at my home. And all of a sudden, I take a look at the books in our family library for some reason. I decide to linger and I realize that we have every single copy of the Communist Manifesto that has ever been published and, and Marx and Engels and a socialist and communist thought. And I look at my mom and I'm like, are we Russian spies? Like, what did Abba do? Uh, what's going on? And it hit me. Like, I have no idea. I know he's a genius. I know he was an analytical writer. What was he writing about? And who do we work for? And she said to me, no, no, no. He, she got, he got his master's in political philosophy in, in Marx. And so I was started out as um, an architecture student. But when I 
became introduced to Orthodox Judaism, I had this crisis and I was very interested. I know this sounds ridiculous, but I was very interested in the philosophy of architecture and how spaces are gendered by architects. And so that was kind of my first introduction. That what is the philosophy of architecture? Because <laughs> you're, you're not, not going to be able to just leave that nugget on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> so architecture, if you can believe it, is this very, uh, it's not practical, at least in certain uh, uh, educational systems. Architecture is a very, you know, um, gosh, intellectual field where you study time and space. And architects are very, you can barely understand what they're talking about because they talk about space. Uh, wow, I haven't talked about this in years, but it's basically the philosophy of space is an architecture is how we design space according to, you know, the day. So the way that people dis designed space 300, 400 years ago was very much, you know, religious oriented and, and there's a feudal system. And now in the modern world, especially with Frank Lloyd Wright, this idea of creating, you know, a modern suburban American family, that is all, uh, you know, the architect's job of and urban planners of how to design spaces that meet the needs of the state and modern life. And so, for example, one of my fa my favorite projects that I did was on Frank Lloyd Wright and, and gendered space and how his philosophy informed the way that he uh, designed uh, his spaces. So you'd have, you know, um, he designed this L house where L shaped house where the the woman's you know the kitchen the woman's domain was in the center and at that l at that corner and then she looks down one hallway and that's you know the kitchen and the living room and she can entertain her guests and then down the other part of the l is the kids rooms and she can put them to bed and then uh, the L opens up to a space, the courtyard, where she can keep an eye on the kids while she's cooking. So this idea of, you know, an all-American woman who just can do it all uh, just from her kitchen, you know, so that kind of philosophy of space, of how space reflects um, our own ideals, uh, was very fascinating to me. And that was how I really got introduced to uh, feminist political theory. And I actually changed my major to women's studies after three years in architecture. Uh, that was that was a bit traumatizing, but uh, to tell people that I went from a very practical, uh, you know, respectful field to studying um, something that at the time, especially was was really not cool. I was a radical <laughs> feminist at a time that it was not cool. Around be, what year uh, is this? This is, I graduated in 2010. I trained, I changed my major around 2008, 2009. Uh, so yeah, over, over a decade ago, when it was not cool to be, to be a feminist. I, I and then that. I decided to be, yeah, I decided to become religious right when it started to be cool and that was that was a poor choice of planning bad timing Nurit. yeah <laughs> very bad timing so how i'm see okay i knew that you had this background in radical feminism and we're gonna talk about it but i'm i'm curious if becoming from to you seemed like a like a rejection of this radical feminism or like did you study radical feminism and then go and then go no, something here is messed up so I'm going to pivot to something else and ended up on what I would call like in a lot of ways the complete opposite end of the spectrum with orthodoxy right. or you know or 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 was it a little bit more nuanced than that I would say it was more nuanced and very I really like the way you put it, that would have been very elegant. Uh, you know, I came across these philosophical, you know, contradictions and I just followed my intellect. No, I would say it was a very messy and not elegant process. And there was a lot of tantruming in the process. <laughs> I was, um, I, 
it was very, very messy. I can't, I can't stress that enough. I felt really pulled between two worlds because I was not planning whatsoever on introducing myself to Orthodox Judaism. That was just not in the plan. And when I changed my majors, it was after I had become introduced and very interested in uh, Torah Judaism. So when I was a sophomore and I was just minding my own business, uh, uh, someone asked me if I was Jewish in the central campus, center of campus. And I signed up for a potential, you know, trip to Israel. And, and the person, the rabbi who asked me, uh, Rabbi Schneer Steinberg, uh, this lovely, lovely family. I mean, they're the best of the best, this family. And, and I, I am pretty sure he knows this. I mean, I was like horrified. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I'm Jewish. Uh, what's up? Like, what, what, what's going on here? I had no exposure whatsoever. And when I signed up that day, I didn't think about it at all. You know, I thought it was this weird experience and I just kept living my life. And then all of a sudden I am getting calls from this woman who wants to learn with me. What, what? <laughs> it's called, you know, let's learn. And you're like, let's learn what, like, what do you mean? Let's learn. Like, I, I was so confused and she wouldn't stop calling. And again, this is someone who I love dearly in the end, you know, but at the time I remember I was just so shocked that when I finally met with her, you know, just to like stop the phone calls, she asked me like, what questions do you have about Judaism? Let's just start with you. And I was like, I have no questions about Judaism. I, she was like, well, I, I was like, I, I don't know what Judaism is. I, I didn't know who Avram and Sarah were. I, I couldn't, I, I think that was a very big moment for me because it was sad to see how much I didn't know, even though, you know, I was proud to be Jewish and all of those things. Uh, but it really, really struck a chord. I was very curious. I became very, very involved. And I was already very involved in feminist activism at the time. Um, you know, I was like a very normal college, a young college woman, but I also had this group of friends that was, you know, connected to my women's studies where uh, not most of my friends were not, you know, radical feminists is what I'm trying to say. But I was involved in getting more involved in feminist uh, circles and activism and organization on campus. So when I became more and more interested in learning about Judaism, that was very, very, very painful. And uh, I did feel the more that I became interested, I felt like I was, especially as I started to become observant, I really had this feeling like I'm going over to the evil side. I'm, I'm going over to the bad side. And I had a lot of inner conflict around that. And, uh, I even, I was, I was pretty depressed when I was trying to figure out where my life is going to go. That was a very difficult time because no one understood what I was going through. I felt very, very alone and I could not talk about my interest in Orthodox Judaism with in certain circles. It just, it just didn't, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? It just didn't compute. You just couldn't do it. So I felt very, very alone, especially my senior year of college when I kind of had made the decision, okay, I'm, I'm going to become more observant. And man, that was, that was a really rough year. Uh, intellectually fascinating, right? Looking back, right. so fascinating. I'm so grateful for it. I wouldn't trade anything in the world at the time. I was betraying everything that I knew and I was betraying also a lot of people. Uh, people were very upset with me um, and I couldn't really hide that I was becoming more observant, you know, trying to light candles before Shabbat with roommates. Um, it was very, very painful. Um, I felt very, uh, I would say, I knew that I came off as very irrational and fanatic 
and ridiculous to people. And I knew to the, ex I knew the extent to which I looked ridiculous to people because I had just been there. I had just been a radical feminist who was observing these Orthodox Jews and, and reading about Orthodox Judaism and thinking, this is terrible. This is awful. And now I was on the other side. So I knew what everybody was thinking, especially uh, in the more you know progressive circles that I was involved in at the time. Yeah, I can imagine all of that being really just confusing, um, you know, to, 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 to pivot so severely. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts on feminism and orthodoxy are now. You know, like you said, over a decade later, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background where I'm coming from. I've been Orthodox my whole life. I grew up from, I'm currently still from, I plan on staying that way. For me, I, I think that I would consider, see, I, I identify with some feminist values and I certainly don't identify with feminist political movements. So for me, I consider myself a feminist to the point where I think that women can do anything that men can do. I think that women should have the same opportunities men, you know, men have. I think that they should be paid the same for that work. I think that um, I think I am pro-choice, like all of those things I fall under. And then like when you get into like you're talking like feminism as a political movement, like I'm perfectly happy wearing a bra and shaving my armpits. But and like I get that those things are like <laughs> distractions. Do you know what I mean? Like I get that those things are are yeah. like I, I whatever. That's just that's just the look and like whatever. It was the 60s. Nobody was shaving their armpits. But either way, like I that, that's that's where I'm coming from. That's that's where I fall. And I'm curious how I'm I'm curious, like, do you feel a need? I also think I'm gonna add in one thing here. I don't, I think that Orthodox society, I think that from society has a problem with women and I would consider it sexist or misogynist to a certain degree. I don't think that Torah is sexist or misogynist. I think that the way that it is practiced is. Um, and I think that there are plenty of things that have become accepted community norms that are not necessarily halacha based or Torah based or, you know, Jewish law based, but are just a bunch of guys decided this would make them more comfortable. And it was a time when a bunch of guys were making rules for everybody, not just in Orthodox life, but, you know, across life everywhere. So they, so they got to make the rules. And so we just kept those rules and now it's, you know, 50 years later and we can't have women in print. So that's, you know, that that's where I come from, from like a, right, a from and Torah perspective. I'm curious what your thoughts on this are. I really like your perspective on what you're saying, because you know, a lot of people think of feminism as one thing. And I think what you said is perfect, that there are different expressions of feminism and there's different wing feminists and there's mutually exclusive ways of being a feminist, right? You know, uh, I think there would be, there are people who say that if you're, you know, a Zionist, you can't be feminist. And then there are feminist Zionists, you know, there is not, it's not black and white. And uh, so I think it's perfectly great. You know, I, I also, I also have written about you know equal pay for equal work, and uh, I've done interviews with. Uh, I did an interview once. I wrote an interview with um, a lawyer from Women Employed who talked about the new paid time laws in Illinois for, uh, which which really helps for, you know, working mothers who become sick or their children become sick. And so there are a lot of really wonderful crossovers. And I believe that there can be a lot of collaborations. And I've done collaborations with, you know, feminist organizations in a way that really empowers Orthodox, you know, from women. And uh, so I love that. And I'm very open to collaborations. Again, as I said, I've, I've done Benny and I've interned and worked for feminist organization and organizations and and feminists. Uh, I I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a feminist because, you know, the feminists that I knew and research and the feminist theory that I research now really would not be okay with me calling myself a feminist, given you know all the other problematic beliefs that you know I have, even if I'm very 
personal and private about it. Uh, and uh, I think that just having come from very progressive, a very progressive feminist background, it's hard for me to call myself a feminist because I, I don't think that, you know, uh, from from a feminist perspective, at least from most feminist perspectives, I don't, I, I shouldn't call myself a feminist. At the same time, you know, I had a very yeshivish, one of my very yeshivish rubs said to me, you know, Marie, you don't consider yourself a feminist? <laughs> and I said, so, so, you, so oh, you're, I, you're, you're too orthodox for the feminists and too feminist for the orthodox people. <laughs> well, I mean, he, he was, no, I think really what it was, was he just thought of feminism as like women's empowerment. You know what I mean? Getting mm. paid for See, that. That's, that's what I'm saying. That's like, and that's, I think where a lot of from women come from. You know, and I think there are yes. a lot of, you know, from an Orthodox people who think about it that way um, and who think about it as like just a female empowerment. And because we have so many women in our community doing pretty awesome things, it becomes that much. Right. It's like, it's like, what do you mean? Yeah, of course, women can do anything men can. And they and they're not necessarily connecting. So you ended up in this space where you were like too, too feminist, like the Orthodox people thought you were way too feminist and the feminist people thought you were too Orthodox. So I think that. You know, I, I think people, because I do so much critique of secular political thought, uh, that I'm not really thought of as, I, I'm pretty, uh, I, I would say sometimes people even think, like I said, when, when my rabbi asked, like, you're not a feminist, and he said, you're not, a, you're not for women's empowerment, sometimes I can even come off as, you know, very, very to the right, because I spend a lot of time uh, critiquing it and critiquing its, uh, you know, s the effects of modern secularism on our communities, even though I do think there is this room for a lot of collaboration. Uh, but I, I would say I am, I am definitely confusing to people politically. They, a lot of times like, okay, what is Nuri? You know, where does she fall? Um, and I think the people who really know me feel like I'm I'm pretty mainstream and don't really think like I'm, you know, a feminist threat, so to speak. Uh, we are my my husband is the president of our shul. Uh, I think, you know, people know that I got my master's in political theory. They're kind of they're used to uh, they're used to me, the people, the people who know me. So. It's usually when people, you know, are introduced to my Instagram for the first time or read an article, like, like, where is she, does she fall? And I, you know, I really like that because I think there needs to be much more nuance in these arguments and in these discussions around, you know, orthodoxy and women and, and gender roles and, uh, Misogyny and all all these kind of discussions. I think there should be a lot of nuance, and I think it shouldn't be easy, you know, to pin down uh, someone really well because I I think it, you know, there are so many and, and the rabbinim that we follow that that uh, we surround ourselves with are very very mainstream, you know, yeshivish but very nuanced thinkers, and that's kind of the the people that we gravitate to. Although I would say, you know, uh, I, I don't live in Masharim. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't survive, you know, in a, in a very, very yeshivish environment. I'm definitely more modern yeshivish and I interact with uh, the modern world a lot. And my family is still, you know, everybody's still secular Israelis. And uh, so I like that people can't really pin me down so well because it always leads to I I'm trying in my work I try to create a new model for dialogue in discourse where people can have a space uh, where they can discuss without the constant pressure and without constant stress and hostility that comes with a lot of black and white thinking and arguments and arguing so you know, people come to my Instagram or to my writing and they think like, you know, MSNBC versus Fox News, like, let's get into it. And no, I would like to have much deeper, more thoughtful conversations. And I can't keep up with that day to day kind of stress of 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 having those white, you know, 
back and forth fights. Um, so I like that it's hard to pin me down, you know? I hear that. I do you feel a need or do you not bother trying to, I don't want to use the word reconcile, but it's the only one that's coming to me right now, feminism and orthodoxy? Or, do, or, or, or is it just kind of like one mush that evolved mm -hmm. into your life philosophy? Lovely question. I like that question a lot. Uh, I would say that I don't try to reconcile, although I think when you, when I think a long time ago, I put down a long, long time ago, I put down the, as probably a product of my environment and the radical environment that I was in, but um, I stopped trying to reconcile because I, I thought, especially, you know, that real progressive feminism, it, it's very hard to reconcile with Orthodox Judaism, even multiculturalist uh, uh, feminisms. Um, there is a lot of work being done, you know, uh, that is Western critical feminism. And so people ask a lot, you know, do you try to reconcile Orthodox Judaism with post-colonial feminism, which notices, you know, uh, the damage that Western society has done to a lot of religious minorities and ethnic minorities. And I would say that, I'll put it this way, my thesis was a critique of both liberal and progressive post-colonial uh, thought. Uh, and that includes feminist thought. But what I did was I tracked, traced back a lot of the criticisms of Orthodox Judaism and Orthodox Jews today whether it's in feminist circles or in just scholarly circles or in activism, I trace it back to a lot of the criticisms of Christian liberal thinkers in the age of enlightenment. So I challenge the idea that even the most inclusive progressive feminisms uh, are really objective or, you know, uh, in their judgments of human nature and what is good or bad for human nature and how that has affected judgments of Jews and Orthodox Jews over time. And there is a lot of similarity today about the way that Orthodox Jews and Judaism are spoken about uh, to uh, conversations about uh, Jews and traditional Jews, you know, the shtetl Jew in uh, 1700s and 1800s, just the idea that Orthodox Jews are, live lives that are not natural, that they live irrationally, that they are that Orthodox Jews uh, have a harder are, are not humanistic, while Christian liberals are much more, you know, filled with love for humanity and the Jew struggles, uh, you know, the Jew is cold. And a lot of times, we think of Orthodox Jews like that as cold and loveless and oppressive and uh, ritualistic. And so it's, I would say it's pretty hard for me having done all of that to really be interested in reconciling, even though I think that what's wonderful about my work is that uh, I think it creates a lot of compassion for a lot more compassion and um, self-reflection on people's uh, judgments, uh, not, and I'm not just talking about misconceptions, like, you know, they're real deep down judgments of Orthodox Jews and Orthodox Judaism. Uh, I think what I try and do is turn the tables around and get people to look at, uh, what they think are objective judgments of of Jews and why they're not really objective and why they're very morally and culturally reinforced over time. So I think it does create a lot of space for compassion and collaboration with people who are not Orthodox. Uh, my work has really, I really love the feedback that I get from people. You know, they feel more compassionate and more open-minded, but um, I wouldn't say that I do that through any sort of reconciliation process. If that makes any sense, <laughs> you know that that does. I, I hear it. It's it's a lot of nuance. There's a lot, you know. There's a lot of different ways to approach something like this, and and I I agree with you that in a way it almost can't be reconciled. And what's the point? You know, what's why why waste that energy when there are other, you know, there are other ways that your time is better spent 
than, you know, trying to make two things that don't want to get along, get along. Yeah, I think, and it, and I'm really talking about, again, about certain strands of feminism. Again, like a lot of my work looks very feminist, right? A lot of, and a lot of empowering, you know, Orthodox Jewish mothers and working mothers that, I mean, there's so much crossover. I'm, I'm, there's so much room for wonderful collaboration that I don't, I wouldn't want anybody to think that I'm shutting down, um, you know, feminist activism from, you know, I think that there are a lot of Western critical thinkers out there and activists, and they're wonderful to work with a lot of times because they're more willing to listen to criticism of the Western world. Uh, So I really don't want to shut it down, but I do think theoretically, philosophically speaking, uh, you know, there historically and and currently a lot of things are problematic and i i do also believe that it creates i talk a lot about this in my work but um the the feminist kind of gaze or the western gaze on orthodox jews and orthodox jewish women does create a lot of perfectionism in our own communities um you know the idea that we have to really prove that we're happy and empowered all the time and spiritually fulfilled and you know where's the room for vulnerability and a lot of feminist scholars have done fantastic work on muslim uh, arab muslim communities and arab muslim women and how that western gaze really tokenizes them uh and and how feminism has really harmed these women in many ways by by putting more pressure on them, you know, to prove themselves to the outside world. Uh, so I, I do talk a lot about, uh, I do talk a lot about that and, you know, where, where it becomes, I try and specify where it becomes problematic. Right. It's like, I even find myself thinking sometimes, you know, like if I'll hear a story about some Orthodox person behaving badly in, in whatever way, you know, getting, you know, caught some crime or whatever. A lot of times my first reaction is, oh, and then we wonder why they don't like us. Like we're not behaving. We need to, like, we need to, we need to be upstanding members. And, and in a lot of ways, I definitely hold Orthodox people to a higher standard. I 100% do this. And I can also recognize that that's not fair. Like we should get to be bad just like everybody else. You know what I mean? Like it's not, you, you know, we, we should get to misbehave just like everybody else, but we can't. And I think that, you know, also particularly, you know, having descended from Holocaust survivors and all of the intergenerational trauma that that comes with, there is definitely a feeling of if we just keep our heads down and we just behave and like, we just do everything right, then like they'll leave us alone and we won't have to deal with like all this anti-Semitic stuff. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, a lot of, I think a lot of the way that we, that we think about our own, a lot of ways that we think about our own lives and our own communities are really wrapped up in this sort of kind of battle with, uh, that we're not always conscious about, and we don't always realize the far reaching effects and consequences uh, but I think a lot of us have this internal battle with a lot of modern, you know, secular thought. And uh, and I definitely think, you know, I talk about this too, uh, of being careful of those double standards because, you know, a lot of modern thought is really rooted in the way that non-Jewish Christians uh thought of Jews and that, um, and I find myself, you know, I remember when I was writing my thesis, my prof- I had a professor, I had two professors, only two professors that really supported my work. The rest were, you know, I couldn't, couldn't even go to a meeting. And um, one of them said, you know, Nuri, you're, uh, you have, your, your anti-Semitism is showing. And um, there is a, uh, this tendency to think that Orthodox Judaism is go against nature 
and goes against human nature and it goes against um it, it goes against you know natural law and I think it's very important to be aware of these things, but it's also, you know, it doesn't mean that we, we shouldn't solve our problems, right? That we shouldn't, we shouldn't confront issues, but it does, when we are um, a little bit more critical of our kind of inner thoughts and inner voice, uh, what, what I'm ultimately encouraging is that we allow for more room for vulnerability, uh, without, you know, without, um, Heart, like a heart that knee that what's that word that I'm looking for like a knee jerk talking about a knee jerk thank you yes I'm a raised by immigrants <laughs> so uh the knee jerk that knee jerk reaction like oh gosh the Jews <laughs> you know uh like someone said I love the Jews despite the Jews you know that new that knee jerk reaction when we hear someone did something um bad and it was covered up or whatnot having I definitely think that confronting these issues with a more nuanced perspective and also realizing the immense pressure that our communities have been in in the modern era because modern states and societies are much more involved and uh, they supervise us uh, much more than when we you know lived in even though I'm not saying that medieval or, or other eras were better, but I'm saying that we just had different challenges. Uh, but Jewish autonomy, Jewish group autonomy, uh, really came under fire in the modern era. And so that means that when we look bad, anti-Semitism rises. And anti-Semitism, even in the most you know inclusive, progressive spaces, is really almost always tied back to what the Jews should have or or shouldn't have done. It's very rarely tied back to non-Jewish, uh, you know, behaviors and choices and and political systems. Uh, it's really oftentimes tied back to what we did and allowing ourselves to be human with one another. You know, I, I always, it is very important, I think, because a lot of the resistance that comes, you know, that we see from Haredi societies. Uh, against modern institutions, well, modern society really devastated our communities. I mean, really devastated. And it wasn't just the Holocaust. It started before because uh, before the Holocaust, I would say in the 18th century, you know, onward, we have something called the Jewish problem. And the idea of, you know, here's this group of Jews that have their own little nation and we can't trust them to be loyal to our developing, you know, liberal nation states. Uh, what are we going to do with them? And uh, the right basically believed, you know, and I'm talking pre-Holocaust right now, uh, the right basically believed, well, let's kick them out or not let them in. You know, they won't assimilate. They're going to fail at assimilating. Uh, the Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Let's expel them or, uh, or not let them in, not let them find refuge in our countries, especially in Western Europe when Eastern European immigrants uh, were fleeing pogroms. We see this a lot in, in right-wing discourse. In left-wing discourse, it's it's actually very anti-Semitic, but it's it doesn't, scholars don't often consider it anti-Semitism, but it's very anti-Jewish. It's, listen, the Jew is just like anybody else. He can assimilate. He can become a rational person, just like a Christian. Uh, just, you know, let's free, let's open the ghetto doors. Let's make them, you know, mandatory state schools was a very devastating blow to traditional Jewish communities where Jewish children now had to go to the state for their education. They weren't allowed to speak Yiddish. Uh, uh, they weren't allowed to traditional Jewish prayers in school. They were raised to be European citizens, loyal to the state instead of to the Jewish people. So we have layers and layers of resistance in our communities and, and trauma from these really devastating efforts to assimilate the Jewish people to the point where the Jewish people, the Jewish nation wouldn't exist. And it's actually very explicit in left-wing discourses that, you know, let's, if you just give the Jew a chance, you give him rights and you give him equality, uh, he'll become rational. He'll, Jewish individuals will assimilate and the Jewish nation with, will dissolve. 
and they'll be loyal to the state and they'll be loyal to humanity and they'll stop being so tribal and so narrow-minded. Uh, so, you know, there was very, very good reason to resist modernity because it really sought to dissolve the Jewish people. That was the main goal uh, of finding solutions to the Jewish problem. Now, this is pre-final solution of Hitler talking about um, a lot of fear towards the outside world. And, you know, I think we fought in the Jewish community for a lot of space to have autonomy, especially in America. But that was a very, very long fight. And I think we're still and we continue to have to deal with it. And it's and it's very, very difficult. And we've lost a lot of things. Even the fact that you and I are speaking English is a testament to how uh, much things have changed in just a couple centuries. Uh, so I do think that when we talk about issues and when we confront issues, it's important now, I always use the example of Encanto, <laughs> the movie Encanto, right? This intergenerational trauma where, you know, there is so much wisdom to be gained from our elders, from Haredi leaders that, that we often feel this knee-jerk reaction to. But there is so much wisdom in very traditional Jewish communities. And a lot of times we block it out because we can be so critical. But there is a lot of resistance for very good reasons to outside institutions and norms coming in. And if we can reach, you know, at the end when she reads this compassionate understanding of where her grandmother is coming from, you know, and they I really think that there's a lot more room for nuance and empathy. And I'm speaking, you know, with experiences myself as a very, very, you know, critical, you know, coming from this very critical leftist uh, radical background, it, it stuck with me a lot. And I, and I want to really, really um, focus on the point that I am not at all trying to, uh, uh, shun away issues. We we have to deal with things. And I love working with nonprofits and I love working in the Haredi community to, to um, work on issues and, and whether it's abuse or uh, harassment or, or whatnot, um, you know, corruption, those kind of things, uh, get individuals, you know, bring them to justice. These are very important things. But I do think that uh, coming in with a with those knee-jerk reactions, you know, there's going to be a lot of resistance to that in our communities, given the history of um, of what we've been through and how and how the Jewish people were really, you know, even by the most liberal people, it was just it didn't it didn't compute to have a Jewish nation, um, you know, who would be disloyal to the state. So I, I think it's helpful to work on issues with with that history in mind. I hear that. Like we have very well-earned neuroses. <laughs> yeah. And I think that there's also a lot of traditional ways of, um, you know, I, I've talked about parenting and traditional ways of parenting. And uh, we have a lot of wisdom um, in our communities that come from, you know, these traditional Jewish ways of life. And I think, you know, I used to have this knee-jerk reaction when I saw like in Mea Sharim or in very yeshivish neighborhoods in Israel, where I see like a seven or eight-year-old kid, you know, walking their baby, right? Yeah, like, like watching, in a stroller. You, you've and got like, like a five-year-old pushing abuse. a three-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> right. And they're holding a milk carton, right? Right. And because um, they just went to the Makola. And now I think to myself, wow, if my seven-year-old just could go over to the 7-Eleven to pick up some milk, that would be fantastic. And I think that um, Orthodox Jewish communities that have really maintained themselves are actually in many ways very highly effective at creating, for example, um, at, at nurturing little kids' desire to help in, in the home. And so I think that it's important that when you go into communities to do work, that 
you realize it's it's not an inter it's not intervention. You're trying to work together to build on each other's wisdom, right? I'm coming in right. knowing certain things about mental health. You're coming in with a way more effective, just day-to-day rhythm of how to live in these large families with large communities. I mean, some of these, I wish, you know, I don't live in a very Haredi community, but just going in with appreciation uh, for the things that they've maintained, you know, the, 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 um, respect that they you know the fact that they can live with their their mothers and fathers and in-laws and grandparents and you know even that Israeli that Israeli ability to be honest and also maintain kind of this quietness um there's a lot of wisdom around family in Haredi communities around you know not overstimulating your kids, right? Letting them help, letting them feel like the home is where they belong. We send our kids out a lot for their, you know, stimulation day to day. We tell them, um, you know, uh, sport. We sign them up for sports and intellectual activities. And and when we're cooking, we say, no, 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 don't don't help me cook. I, <laughs> right? There are more traditional communities among us that that teach our children, you know to love and feel like a sense of belonging in the home and in the community. And, and that doesn't mean that they don't have, you know, a lot of problems to deal with in those communities. But I think that when we're trying to get to um, the crux of certain problems, uh, it can be very frustrating if, if we do come in from a sense of, of compassion. So that, that framework for you have wisdom, I have wisdom, uh, let's see what we can do together and and with a lot of respect for one another and what we've been through, what our people have been through. Uh, I found that that ha- helps with organically creating just, you know, for any relationship, just a foundation between Jews of of really just allowing one another to be vulnerable without jumping each other's down each other's throats. Uh, is something that I think will open up communication uh, more between, you know, the different sects of our communities. I I can definitely hear that. I could do this like for another 10 hours, but we are out of time right now, which is, it's, wow, we really flew through this. Um, uh, I want everyone to know about the Jews and Philosophy podcast. Um, this is the podcast that you host, and it's really just like great little bite-sized nuggets of information, you know, about these big topics broken down into, into smaller bits, right? Yeah, we're coming out, I'm coming out with um, a new series where we're going to start breaking down the bigger conversations into more bite-sized pieces with bite-sized questions. And, uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll come out very soon with another five episodes or so fantastic. And all of that will be linked in the show notes as soon as it's available. Um, if somebody wants to learn more about you, New Read, or get in touch with you, where should they go? So I'm working on my website right now. Uh, but for now, I would reach out to me on Instagram at Nareet Siegel or on Facebook or just Nareet Siegel at, at gmail.com. And then when my website is up and ready, uh, I'll provide all sorts of links. But just if you know how to spell my name, it's pretty easy to get in touch with me. Okay. So there you go, people. Use the magic of the internet. You know how to do it. Uh, last thing I want to ask you, Nureet, is uh, what does it mean to you to make an impact? Oh, gosh. What does it mean to me to make an impact? Gosh, to be a Jew means to make an impact, to 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 be yourself so that other people can be themselves with you. That's the biggest impact I think that we can have uh, is to to really take seriously Havas Yisrael through, you know, love of, of, of our people through, uh, through empathy and, and a willingness to, to listen to other stories the way that we want our stories to be listened to. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today, Nuri. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you so much, Rifki, for the platform. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Nurit, her links are in the show notes. On last week's episode, I went solo to talk about the idea behind and the process of creating the pause stress. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 16 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.